Amen. So if you have a Bible with you, I encourage you to turn to Mark 2 and follow along with us as we continue on in our series in the Gospel of Mark, the story of the Savior. And the goal in this whole series, as we've been learning, but it's worth reminding ourselves each week as we come together, is not to walk away and say, what can I do better? But to walk away each week and say, look what Jesus did. And how can I emulate him? And how can I be like him? And be filled with everything that he's filled with. And to walk as he walked. And so this morning, we, we've just heard an amazing story. Just like the amazing story we've heard this morning, this, this morning from Chris and, and uh, Sierra about their baby Jack. And the stories that we've seen in our own lives of the amazing grace that we've been shown. This morning, we're going to learn about more about the amazing story uh, that Jesus is writing in the story of humanity. So I want to give you three scenarios to think about as we begin this morning, just to frame our thinking. First scenario, imagine a wandering strange animal shows up at your doorstep and it's wounded. What do you do? Are you going to care for it? Picture your answer or your first instinct. Second scenario. Your child breaks something that you really, really liked or that's really valuable to you. What are you going to say? In the third scenario, someone that's really severely caused you pain in your past walks into the restaurant that you're eating at and you see them immediately but they don't necessarily see you, and you're not even sure that they recognize you. Do you go talk to them? What do you do? As you think about those three scenarios, which we're going to come back around to in the course of this sermon, I want you to think about the topic of forgiveness. Because what we're going to see in the person of Jesus this morning is that, just as we learned two weeks ago that he is the good news, And that frames our vision as a church to be a church of good news and a church of the kingdom and a church of proclaiming good news. And just as we saw last week that Jesus is the caller and that frames our vision of the church of being a church that listens and that responds and that stills ourselves before the caller. This morning, we're going to see that Jesus is the forgiver. And so how does that reality frame the vision of this church? If Jesus is the forgiver, which he is, the one forgiver of the whole world, how does that frame the vision of this church? And how does that frame the way we live our Christian life? What does it mean to forgive? I can't tell you the answer to that question. That's a profound question. And that's one that only God himself can teach us to do. And if we look at Jesus in this story this morning, we're going to get a pretty good answer about what it means to forgive and how can we live a life of forgiveness individually and as a church. How can we be a forgiving church? So this morning, we're going to look at three different waves of the path towards forgiveness. And so we're going to look at the place of forgiveness, the problem of forgiveness or the pain of forgiveness, and then ultimately the power of forgiveness. And we're going to let Jesus show us. So let's look at what Jesus does and let's learn from him now. Number one, looking at the first five verses, verses one to five from Mark two, 
We're going to look at the place of forgiveness. The place of forgiveness. And you'll notice, and I think this is really interesting. I don't think I'd ever really recognized this before. But in Mark 2, the first verse, it says, He returned to Capernaum after some days, and it was reported that he was at home. Somewhere in the midst of being born until this point in Jesus' story, he moved to Capernaum, it seems, from Nazareth to Capernaum. So Jesus is making his home in the city of Capernaum now. So this was Jesus' house that he was listened to, that he had opened up so that people could come in and listen to him teach. And it says here, a great crowd came about. There were a lot of people that came into Jesus' house wanting to hear him teach, probably upwards of 50 people. If the house was full, houses in that day could probably find about 50 people. Again, remember, this is, this is so hard to think about now. This is before social distancing. So you could actually like squeeze in close to each other. You could cram people in. Social distancing, maybe you could get 10 people in his house. But he didn't have to worry about that at that time. So maybe 50 people were there. Everyone wanted to be there. This was the hot ticket in town. This was like the Beatles coming to Compertum. Or this was like you trying to get into a Patriots Super Bowl game. This was the hot ticket in town. There wasn't a seat, an extra seat to be found. Jesus' hospitality here was pretty extraordinary, actually. And that's a big theme you see in the life of Jesus, how he receives people in no matter what. He'll take anybody into his life and into his space. And you're going to see, I'm sure, if we could look at all these people that were listening to him teach, he probably had a variety of people. And the church should be reflective of that, right? We sh- our churches should be comprised of many different types of people from all different backgrounds and economic levels and statuses and ethnicities. Our church, the church, as we prayed for globally, is a beautiful tapestry. And I bet Jesus' teaching that, smor- that, that morning uh, reflected that as well. But one group of people couldn't get in, right? They didn't get the ticket. They didn't sign up quick enough. They didn't, they didn't get there early. And there's this group of four people and their friend who was paralyzed. And we don't know much more about him other than the fact that he was paralyzed. But surely that put him at a, at a status in his society that was probably a little bit on the fringes. And these, these people got pretty creative, right? They climbed up to the roof somehow. We don't know how. And they said, if we can't get in through the door, we're coming up the roof. And so I learned a lot this week about what roofs in Capernaum in the first century were like, which you actually can find quite a bit. So here's what a roof in Capernaum in the first century was like. It's most likely a flat roof. So it wasn't like this. They didn't have to worry about snowfall like we do in New England. So it was a flat roof. It was constructed of timbers laid parallel to each other about two or three feet apart. And then crosswise over the timbers, they laid sticks close to each other, which formed the basic roof. But then on top of that, they laid reeds and branches of trees and thistles. And then all of that, they overlaid probably with about a foot of earth, of mud and dirt and just anything else they could find to pack it in so that it could resist any rain or water that came in. So all, all things considered, a roof was about two feet thick. And it had multiple layers. This isn't just like, all right, I'm just going to get a hammer and just, and we're in. Kind of like an HGTV, you know, home demolition. This is, these guys were digging and pulling and breaking things apart. They were digging through the roof. And if it was the springtime, there probably was grass growing on top of the roof because of the soil that they put on top of this roof. So all things considered, again, when I was picturing this story, I kind of was picturing 
a sudden thing. Like you're working on top of the roof and you fall through and oh, everybody's surprised, here they are. But in reality, what people say is actually, it took quite a bit of effort to get into this house via the roof to the point where when they started digging and pushing things apart, the debris was probably falling on the people below. And they could see what was happening. There's people up above us trying to get into the house above, through the roof. And they were getting dirt on them. There was, there was noisy. And they just were waiting for them to finally, sunlight to pop, to pop through. And they finally do. And what's Jesus' response? It doesn't even really tell us. But these people just put a hole in his roof. <laughs> Can you imagine? Like you're sitting in your house trying to lead a Bible study or something. And someone like knocks the door down or put, literally cuts a hole in your house. I'd be kind of mad. I, like I said, we moved into a new place about a month ago. So and we painted it. And it looks nice. And anytime I like get a little scuff on the wall, I kind of panic. Oh, I can't believe I got a scuff on my new white wall. I, Jesus is not that way at all, right? They cut a hole in his house. And he doesn't really seem phased. He takes them in. He takes them in. That's the first big thing I want us to think about, this first point. Jesus takes in. That's the first path to forgiveness, taking in. Jesus takes these people in and he receives them. Jesus is relinquishing here any kind of bitterness or uncomfortability or presupposition about what these people are trying to do. He takes them in. That's the first step here that ultimately leads to this place of forgiveness. That's the first step here. He receives their full selves. He receives their brokenness, including their vandalism, into his house. And he receives their full history, not knowing, again, these guys could have been burglars. They could have been up to no good. Jesus probably didn't know much about them, but he receives them in. He receives their pain. This man was paralyzed. Jesus takes in their pain. You know, there's a story in John chapter 9 that talked about a blind man that came and was healed. Or he wasn't healed yet. He just came in and said, I, I want to be healed. And the disciples said, who was it that sinned in this man's family? Was it him, the blind man, or was it his parents? So what's the assumption here about people with disabilities in this time? The assumption was, if you were, if you were pained, if you had a disability... You did something wrong. Either you or someone in your family, you caused it on yourself. Your sin caused it. And Jesus says, no, it wasn't either one of them that sinned. It was so that the works of God might be shown through him. He was blind so that God could show his power through the blind man. And so the same thing's got to be happening here. This man was paralyzed so that Jesus could show his power through the paralyzed man. Ultimately, Jesus does take on the paralyzed man's pain. You'll see later in the story, Jesus says, your sins are forgiven well before he heals him. But Jesus actually takes in the pain of the paralyzed man in his life. When Jesus hangs on the cross, he's taking on the pain of the whole world and is experiencing it on himself. So whatever pain you are bringing to this place this morning or into your life, know that Jesus has taken that pain and whatever you're feeling, 
He's already borne it on himself on the cross. What an amazing thought. Jesus takes us in, into his life. The mockers yell to Jesus, surely if you could, if you're God, you could get yourself down from the cross. And Jesus said, yeah, I guess I could, but I'm not going to. I'm going to stay here. You could look at Jesus was paralyzed on the cross. You ever thought about it that way? He chose not to move his body one inch so that he could pay our penalty. Jesus takes on the faith of his friends here, of the friends who are carrying the paralyzed man. They went to great lengths to carry this paralyzed person into Jesus' home, and Jesus, in the same way, carries our pain as well. So as Christians, we're called to take in others, those who are broken, those who are in pain, those whom we disagree with, those whom have inflicted or continue to inflict brokenness and pain on us. Where are we to take them in? Oftentimes, it's not best to take them into our home. If someone has abused you or done something awful to you, you probably shouldn't take them into your home. That's just a wise thing. So don't hear me saying that. But what is the place of forgiveness? It's our heart. Jesus calls us to take in the pain of others, even those who have pained us, and to take them into our heart and to relinquish bitterness, to relinquish any kind of standing over them, and to take them in. Welcome one another as God is, as Christ has welcomed you for the glory of God. Romans 15, 7. One of my favorite verses in the Bible. There's a story in Newburyport that I read this past week of a llama that had escaped and was running rampant on the highways in Newbury. Crazy story here. A llama on the loose. And this guy was driving on the road and he saw the llama and he said, that's odd. You don't see llamas in Newburyport very often. And so uh, he pulled over, this guy named Patrick pulled over, and he said the llama was acting very chill as he walked up to him. And he put his arm around him, kind of calmed him down. He was really gentle and friendly. He said he must have been some kind of pet or something, because he seemed to be want to be taken in. So eventually he called the animal control. They didn't really know where, they, where he came from either, um, but they gave him a lot of water and, and fed him food, gave him some care. And finally, towards the end, uh, they passed him over to an animal care center in New Hampshire. And this person said, I did a, a night check with him last night and had a glass of wine with him. I'm kind of a little attached to him at this point, it says. And it says, if no owner comes forward, that uh, she'd consider taking on the llama herself. It's a funny story, but I think it, it shows a little bit of the spirit here of what Christians are to be like. Just take, take in. Take in. And love, and you might find yourself attached to this idea of forgiveness or to loving one another. So the first step is taking in and receiving others and relinquishing anything we're holding over them. Second point here. So we've looked at the place of forgiveness. Now let's look at the problem of forgiveness. Or as I like to say, the pain of forgiveness. This requires absorbing the brokenness and pain and sin of another person. Absorbing it. Like a sponge. The Pharisees come up to Jesus and they say to him, this is after Jesus has said your sins are forgiven. And the Pharisees say, why does this man speak like that? He's blaspheming. Who can forgive sins but God alone? Exactly. Exactly. What a great question, Pharisees. You've hit the nail on the head. Who can forgive sins but God alone? You're exactly right. Jesus here shows us that he doesn't just take in 
sinners or pain or broken people, he takes on those people as well. What do I mean by taking on? I think there's two ways you can look at this. Taking on can mean like confronting or challenging, like I'm going to take on this challenge or I'm going to take on that, that opportunity. Jesus takes on sin and pain and Jesus also takes it on in the sense of putting it on his back and carrying it. Those are the two senses here that I want to look at. So what does Jesus take on in the confronting or the challenging and in the carrying sense? He takes on our sin. He takes on sin, the problem of sin in the world. What is sin? When I was 17 years old in high school, I had grown up in a Christian home. And I, I, I was getting to this place where I wanted to share my faith with others. And a friend of mine, who I don't think was a Christian at the time, we got talking about spiritual things. And when the topic turned to sin, and he looked at me and he said, Stephen, what is sin? Do you know what I told him? I'm not sure I really know what sin is. I mean, I, I, I know the term, but I don't, I'm not sure I really knew how to define it as a 17-year-old. It's a question that kind of got me thinking of, how do I define sin? So how would you define sin? The New City Catechism says that sin is rejecting or ignoring God in the world he created, not being or doing what he requires in his law. Do you know how many laws there are in the Old Testament that we have to obey and require and to pay attention to? 613. Sin then by one definition means ignoring or not being able to keep up with those, that law. Or we could just simplify it to two. Jesus says the whole law can be summed up in two things. Love God and love your neighbor. It's pretty hard to keep up those two. Forget 613 when you summarize it just by two. That's still pretty hard. Susanna Wesley has a pretty good definition of sin. Susanna Wesley is the mother of John Wesley, the famous Christian. And I think mothers have a pretty intuitive sense about what sin is. You could ask your mother, and she probably has a pretty good idea of what sin is because of how you acted to her. This is her definition of sin. This is a little bit lengthier, a little bit wordier, but let's just let's slow down and listen to this. Whatever weakens your reasoning impairs the tenderness of your conscience obscures your sense of God or takes away your relish for spiritual things. In short, anything that, if anything increases the authority and power of the flesh over the spirit, that to you becomes sin, however good it is in itself. So the primacy of what Jesus is addressing in his mission is addressing sin, challenging sin, taking it on. He challenges our sin by aggressively going after our sinful heart. Not just our pain that we're feeling in our physical body, but the pain and the brokenness in our heart and our soul. Jesus aggressively takes that on. And that's what he sees when he sees the paralyzed person. He doesn't see the paralysis first. He sees the soul and the heart of men and women like us. But he doesn't just leave it in the sense of challenging it or going after it. He actually takes it on himself, right? That's the story of the gospel. The good news is that Jesus takes on our sin, on his back, on his person, and carries it on him. This is something that we humans cannot give to one another. I can't, I can't carry Bob's sin. 
I can't carry any of your sin. You can't carry mine. Only Jesus can. Because he's the spotless lamb. He's the righteous son of God. Isaiah 53, looking ahead to the Savior, says, He was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. That's him challenging sin. The Lord laid on him the iniquities of us all. God the Father took the sins of humanity and laid them on the shoulders of Jesus, and he carried the burden of it. Forgiveness, then, always must require two people. It requires someone who takes on the sins of another person. And again, like I said, I can't take on your sin. You can't take on mine. Whenever I'm forgiving someone else, that doesn't mean I can actually take their sin and carry it. But I can, I can take them on, take on their brokenness, and then give their sin, along with my own, to the faithful shoulders of Jesus and allow him to carry it. That's what Jesus is really taking on here. Verses 6 to 10, he doesn't just take on sin, but then he takes on the questions of the doubters. Verses 6 to 10, you see the story here shifts to the story of the Pharisees who ask him the question, how can you forgive sins? Only God can forgive sins. And Jesus confronts and carries that burden as well. He comes right back at them. They're demanding a sign that Jesus show him that they're God. Jesus has already healed people. And so I don't think that's the hard part here for Jesus. He's like, I don't think healing is the hard part. That's what he says here. Right in verse uh, 9, he says, Which is easier, to say to the paralytic, your sins are forgiven, or to say, rise up, take up your bed, and walk? He's implying here that the harder thing is which one? The second one. The harder one here is to take up your bed and walk. But why? Why is that the case? He says, forgiveness of sin is, he's like, that's what flows out of my heart. That's who I am. But you're demanding a sign. And you can tell Jesus almost resists doing this here. And I think he does that because he knows that whenever we are physically healed of something, it kind of gets to this place in our heart where we feel like that's maybe all we need. If just my physical things were taken care of, if just my brokenness and my pain was taken care of, then my life would be fine. But Jesus knows that we need more than that. We need more than what we can see. He gives us the prayers that we would have asked for. He answers them in advance. And so Jesus heals the man here as validation of the spiritual work. He says, I'm going to heal this man, but I'm going to do it so that you see my authority. He challenges the authority question. And he carries the challenge of it on himself. Forgiveness and glory come only through taking on the brokenness and putting it back together stronger and more beautiful than before. And so take heart that Jesus does that for us. I have an illustration that I want to show you that I think can exemplify this about brokenness. And so I think there's a picture on the screen here of a broken uh, pot or broken bowl. And you see there the Japanese word kintsugi. I learned about this recently. There's a concept in Japanese art or in pottery called kintsugi that especially, so there, were a, there was a major earthquake several years ago in Japan, and this, this happened a lot. Is, and when an earthquake happens, things fall off the shelves and they break. And what happened is they kind of brought back this ancient art of kintsugi, of when something breaks, you bring it to a person, a kintsugi master, 
who takes a broken bowl and doesn't just give you a brand new one, but he starts putting the pieces back together and does so in such a way that it actually looks more beautiful than it was before. In the art form of kintsugi, it says, the Japanese art of putting broken pottery pieces back together with gold built on the idea that in embracing your flaws and imperfections, you can create an even stronger, more beautiful piece of art. And so show the next picture here of what it looks like when it's put back together. The gold in the cracks that actually puts it back together in a functional way but shows the beauty of the flaw, the beauty of the imperfection that now has been made right. It's been put back together. And kintsugi actually is a way for us to understand what Jesus does when he takes on the challenge and the carrying of brokenness and sin in us. Jesus is the gold here in the kintsugi bowl. He's the one that puts us back together and makes us shine more beautifully, not in spite of our brokenness, but through our brokenness. When Jesus broke his body on the cross, he showed a more beautiful way of love and sacrifice than ever before. So the second step towards true forgiveness is then taking on people's brokenness, giving it to Jesus, and letting him shine beauty through it. Forgiveness is painful. Getting broken is painful. Forgiveness then is granted before it is felt, as Tim Keller says. When you give forgiveness to somebody, you actually feel the pain pretty immensely before you can actually um, see the power of it. You're going to experience pain when you forgive somebody. And Jesus certainly did as well when he carried our sin. Forgiveness is a form of voluntary suffering. The way of Jesus. Taking up our cross and following him. Last point here. So we've seen the place of suffering, the place of forgiveness. We've seen the, the um, what's the second P? What did I say? We've seen the place of, forg- of, the place of forgiveness. The pain, thank you, the pain of forgiveness. And now we're going to look at the power of forgiveness. So these last several verses, these are a different story, but they, I think, are a continuation of the same story. So if you look at these last, the last section here, verses really 13 to 17, you see that Jesus doesn't just take us in, he doesn't just take us on. After we forgive, after we've been forgiven, he then takes us out. He takes us out. He takes us out in two senses. He takes us out as in away from something. He takes us away from our sin and our brokenness. He restores us. Like you see the paralyzed man, he stands up and he rises and he walks. And people glorify God because of it. And he also takes us out to something. He takes us out towards reconciliation. All true forgiveness has an end goal and an end aim. And the end aim is reconciliation. Reconciliation between two people where they are restored back to right relationship and ultimately reconciliation between God and man. That is the end goal of all true forgiveness. God was in Christ reconciling the world to himself. 2 Corinthians 5 says... Forgiveness brings glory to God. 
when the man stands up and walks, this transformed life or his physical pain is taken away as a validation of his spiritual life that has now been made right because his sins have been forgiven. Glory comes to God. The people give glory to God. We're going to sing a song here at the end saying, we will glorify the King of Kings. And that should be what's on our lips is the glory we give to God because we have been forgiven. A transformed life. Forgiveness brings glory. Forgiveness is freedom. The actual word forgiveness here really just means abandonment or release or leaving behind. And listen to this. The last two weeks we've read stories about disciples who were called by Jesus and they were it said they immediately left their nets. They left their father and they followed him. Do you know what that word left their nets, left their father is? It's the same word for forgiveness that we're reading here. When Jesus goes last week that we saw and he heals Simon's mother-in-law who has a fever and it says he, he, gave, he, he laid his hand on her hand and it said the fever immediately left her. You know what word that is? It's the same word here for forgiveness. Freedom. Leaving things behind and following Jesus. That's forgiveness. It's an amazing thought. Forgiveness, then, in these last three verses. Remember I mentioned hospitality at the very beginning? Jesus inviting people into his home. What do we, how does the story end here? It's Jesus sitting around a table with tax collectors and sinners. Forgiveness creates the truest expression of hospitality in the world. If you forgive someone, if you've been forgiven, you're going to open up your life and your home and your space to them. And the world is going to look at you and say, what are you doing? They're going to be just as confused as the, as the Pharisees are here. They said, why does he eat with tax collectors and sinners? And Jesus says, those who are well have no need of a physician. But those who are sick, those bad ones, those broken ones, those who have pain, I came to call not the righteous, but the sinners. I came to call the broken ones. So if you're broken, take heart. If you're filled with pain today, take heart. If you've sinned already today, take heart. Jesus offers forgiveness and hospitality through himself. So the final step of, recon- of forgiveness is a commitment to the lifestyle of reconciliation. Taking out what you've been given. Forgiven so that you might forgive others. Forgive us as we forgive our debtors. That's what we prayed earlier today. Right? So not, not just a one-time thing. It's putting ourselves in uncomfortable positions. It's listening to those who are different. Being slow to speak. And understanding another's life in its full context. The path to forgiveness is found in Christ alone. To finish today, I'd like to read Psalm 130 as my conclusion, and then we're going to stand and sing our final song together. So listen to the word of the Lord, seven verses from Psalm 130. Out of the depths I cry to you, O Lord. O Lord, hear my voice. Let your ears be attentive to the voice of my pleas for mercy. 
If you, O Lord, should mark iniquities, O Lord, who could stand? But with you there is forgiveness that you may be feared. I wait for the Lord. My soul waits. And in his word, I hope. My soul waits for the Lord more than watchmen for the morning. More than watchmen for the morning. O Israel, hope in the Lord. For with the Lord there is steadfast love. And with him is plentiful redemption. And he will redeem Israel from all his iniquities. Jesus is the only path to true forgiveness. He is the forgiver. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we come to you broken, sinful, and in need of restoration. Would you forgive us? We live in a world where we're quick to point out the sins of others and the brokenness of others. But Lord, we confess to you first as we finish today. And may we leave this place with this spirit of brokenness, asking for your forgiveness. Would you forgive us so that the world might find hope in you and see a church that is humble and contrite in spirit? You are the one true living God. We put our trust and our hope in you, and we glorify your name because of what you've done. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.